Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. You could think of neurologists as map makers. They plot out the brain's diverse domains and territories, from the features and activities that define them to the roadways that connect them to the boundaries that delineate them. But they're finding the brain doesn't think the way you think it does. That's next. Quantum Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. Let's break out our brain maps. Toward the front of the brain, just behind the forehead, is the prefrontal cortex. It's the seat of judgment. Behind that lies the motor cortex. It's responsible for planning and coordinating movement. To the sides are the temporal lobes. They're crucial for memory and processing emotion. Above the temporal lobes sits the somatosensory cortex. And behind the temporal lobes, you'll find the visual cortex, Lisa Feldman Barrett is a psychologist at Northeastern University. Scientists approach the brain the way old-fashioned map makers used to approach making maps. So in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, map makers would make maps that would accentuate the land a king owned and make everything else smaller. And I'm not saying that scientists do this literally with the brain, but what they do is they parse the brain in terms of what they're interested in. And so you can get a single brain region, what they're interested in psychologically or mentally or behaviorally. And so what you can do is you get it in a single brain region that has a bunch of different names or now a brain network. You take the brain and you parse it into networks as if they're Lego blocks, as if there are firm boundaries there, which there are not. But a brain map with neat borders isn't just oversimplified, it's misleading. Barrett says for more than 100 years, scientists have searched fruitlessly for brain boundaries between thinking, feeling, deciding, remembering, moving, and other everyday experiences. Everyone labels it in line with what they are interested in. So if you're interested in memory, you call it a memory network. If you're interested in perception, you call it a context network. If you're interested in theory of mind and how people perceive each other, you call it a mentalizing network. I could go on and on and on. I've written quite a bit about why this is a problem. And you have to understand, I think that there is no right way to do this. Barrett says there are better ways and there are worse ways. She says a host of recent neurological studies further confirm that mental categories are poor guides for understanding how brains are structured or how they work. Neuroscientists generally agree about how the physical tissue of the brain is organized. It's divided into particular regions, networks, and cell types. David Popel is a neuroscientist at New York University. So now what about what it's about. The other part is that you want to relate it to the things that we care about, perception, cognition, emotion, consciousness, whatever you want. There, things get a lot more dodgy. And let's call it for the sake of argument, the functional level of description or the computational level of description. 
And that has its own parts list. And that parts list or ontology comes from many thousands of years of reasoning about behavior, psychology, cognition. There's no question that the visual cortex enables sight, the auditory cortex enables hearing, and the hippocampus is essential for memory. Damage to those regions impairs those abilities, and researchers have identified mechanisms underlying them in those areas. But take memory, for example. It also requires brain networks other than the hippocampus, and it turns out the hippocampus is key to a growing number of cognitive processes other than memory. Sometimes the degree of overlap is so great that the labels start to lose their meaning. Here's Lisa Feldman Barrett again. You have these phenomena that your brain constructs called anger, sadness, fear, or types of memory or types of perception. The assumption is that's caused by a set of processes by the same name. The episodic memory process causes episodic instances of episodic memory. And those are supposed to be localized in specific neurons only for episodic memory, right? Dedicated to episodic memory. That idea that there's some kind of strong parallelism between the phenomenon, the mental process, and then the implementation, the neural implementation, is just mm -hmm. wrong. It's just wrong. But that's a very hard behavior to get scientists to shift away from. Neurologist Paul Chisek of the University of Montreal says the current framework has led to important insights, but also... It's gotten us stuck in certain traps. And some of those traps... I think are really stifling research, both in neuroscience and in AI, actually. If you define the problem a certain way, certain things become really difficult. That's hobbled the development of treatments for neurological and psychological conditions. That's why Barrett, Chisek, and other scientists argue that for us to truly understand how the brain works, Concepts at the field's core may need to be revised, maybe radically. As they grapple with that challenge, they're uncovering new ways to frame their questions about the brain, and they're getting new answers. Earlier this year, one such approach revealed an unexpected link between memory formation and metabolic regulation. But even if a new framework succeeds in explaining the brain's operation, some researchers wonder whether the price of that success will be the loss of connection to our human experience. Functional magnetic resonance imaging and other powerful technologies made it possible to examine living brains in increasingly sophisticated ways. So neuroscientists started searching for the physical basis of our mental faculties. They made great strides in understanding the neural foundations of perception, attention, learning, memory, decision-making, motor control, and other classic categories of mental activity. But they also found unsettling evidence that those categories and the neural networks that support them don't work as expected. It's not just that the architecture of the brain disrespects the boundaries between established mental categories. Barrett says there's so much overlap in a single brain network that you start to say... That network has more aliases than Sherlock Holmes. For example, recent work has found that two-thirds of the brain is involved in simple eye movements. Half of the brain gets activated when we breathe. 
In 2019, several teams of scientists found that most of the neural activity in perception areas, like the visual cortex, was encoding information about the animal's movements rather than sensory inputs. This identity crisis isn't limited to neural centers of perception or other cognitive functions. The cerebellum, a structure in the brains of all vertebrates, was thought to be dedicated almost exclusively to motor control. But scientists have found that it's also instrumental in attention processes, the regulation of emotions, language processing, and decision-making. The basal ganglia are another ancient part of the brain usually associated with motor control. They, too, have been implicated in several high-level cognitive processes. Some of these confusing results may come from methodological problems. Look at trying to find where the human brain performs different functions. Neuroscientists typically correlate cognitive processes with patterns of brain activity measured by fMRI. But studies suggest that researchers need to be more alert to irrelevant muscle twitches and fidgets that may contaminate the readings. Yuri Buzaki is a neuroscientist at the NYU School of Medicine. This has enormous practical implications that when you are studying humans, in a cognitive environment and in an fMRI, and you are thinking that your results are telling you something about high-level cognition. In fact, it may not reflect anything else except that because of the task, your eyes are moving differently. Or you change your respiration. You know, when you change your respiration, half of the brain is activated. But Buzaki and other scientists believe the recent findings also highlight a deeper conceptual problem in neuroscience. When mm. neuroscience started to work on interesting problems, then it already had a framework, a roadmap, if you want, without thinking neuroscientists just jump into the brain and say, okay, I'm interested in emotions, I'm interested in motivation, I'm interested in memory, all of these things. And then started to find homes and boxes to all these ideas without ever seriously questioning whether this is the good or the only approach or how things came about. Then this is where we got into big problems because we divide the real estate of the brain according to our preconceived ideas. And Buzaki says those ideas included an incorrect assumption that those preconceived ideas have boundaries and the same boundaries exist in brain function. In 2019, Russell Poldrack, a neuroscientist at Stanford University, and his colleagues set out to test how appropriate the recognized categories for mental function are. They gathered a massive amount of behavioral data from experiments designed to test different aspects of cognitive control, including working memory, response inhibition, and learning. They ran that data through a machine learning classifier. The resulting classifications defied expectations, mixing up traditional categories of brain results and sorting them into new groups. Poldrack says they seem to move together in terms of some much more generic constructs. We don't yet have labels for those constructs, which might not relate directly to our conscious experience. Another study by Poldrack's colleagues looked at tasks meant to measure either perception or memory. Poldrack says they weren't really measuring different constructs after all. He says it suggests that those two categories are really imprecise, 
It's not that perception or memory is a useless term, he emphasized. But Poldrack says if we want to understand what the brain does, we probably need much more precise ways to understand particular functions. Poldrack says the fact that it's not even clear how to differentiate tests of perception from those of memory suggests that those categorical constructs may not actually be the real organizing features of the mind. Some scientists push back, arguing that so long as we know that the visual cortex isn't just involved in vision or that a memory network is doing more than its name suggests, we don't necessarily need to rethink the categories themselves. John Krakauer is a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins University. Sometimes an overly broad, vague use of a term can have detrimental effects on the type of experiments and hypotheses you generate. That's perhaps been most obvious in research on emotions and mood. Joseph Ledoux is a neuroscientist at NYU, known for his pioneering work on the amygdala. That's often referred to as the fear center of the brain. But he says that framing is very wrong and very harmful. I kept being introduced over the years to someone who discovered how feelings of fear come out of the amygdala. But I would always kind of flinch when I would be introduced that way. And so finally in 2012, I said, okay, I've had enough. Ledoux has spent the decade since then emphasizing that the amygdala isn't involved in generating fear at all. He says fear is a cognitive interpretation of a situation, a subjective experience tied up in memory and other processes. The psychological phenomena that some people experience as fear may be experienced as something very different by others. Research shows that the feeling of fear arises in the prefrontal cortex and related brain areas. The amygdala, on the other hand, is involved with processing and responding to threats, an ancient subconscious behavioral and psychological mechanism. Here's Ledoux again. What I've been trying to do is say, okay, let's call a spade a spade, so to speak. If we are talking about subjective experiences, we should use mental state words for subjective experiences and not for behavior. So when we talk about fear behavior, that confuses things because now we're talking about a subjective state, fear that is causing the behavior. But the evidence shows that it's not fear that causes the behavior. Fear itself, the experience and the behavior are parallel processes generated separately in the brain by different circuits. Calling the amygdala the fear center might seem innocuous, but Ledoux says names matter. In psychology, if we use a cute name and label the amygdala as a fear center, then the amygdala inherits all of the baggage, semantic baggage of fear. When we name things, they inherit the mental state properties of the name even if they're talking about behavior, and that is the fundamental problem. That naming mistake can distort attempts to develop medications, including those aiming to reduce anxiety. When potential treatments are tested in animals under stress, if the animals behave less timidly or show less physiological arousal, it's usually interpreted as a reduction in anxiety or fear levels. But Ledoux says a medication can change someone's behavioral or physiological responses, those outputs of the amygdala, 
without curing feelings of anxiety. Psychotherapy, the whole field is suffering because of this confusion between how the drug is developed and what it needs to do. We've all been swayed by the argument that the amygdala is a fear center, for example. So we can turn off the amygdala, that solves the problem, but that's not the answer. The amygdala doesn't make fear. Here is a cognitive interpretation of the situation. Ledoux says similar problems occur in other areas, such as studies of perception, where the physical processing of the sensory stimulus and the conscious experience of it are often bundled together. The so-called first-order theory of consciousness is that visual perception occurs in the visual cortex. That's all you need is a representation of the lines and angles and colors, and that is where your conscious experience comes from. So the physical processing of the stimulus and the conscious experience are bundled together. And I think that has to be pulled apart. But teasing apart the significance of different brain areas is further complicated by the discovery that the involvement of neural systems in particular functions isn't simply all or nothing. Sometimes it's contingent on the details of what's being processed. Take the part of the medial temporal lobe, called the perirhinal cortex, a crucial component of the classic memory system in the cortex. Elizabeth Murray of the National Institute of Mental Health and others did experiments related to this. They asked humans and monkeys to select a desired image from a pair that were morphed to resemble each other to varying degrees. They found that the perirhinal cortex was involved in the performance of the task only when a particular amount of feature overlap was present. If the images were more similar or less, the perirhinal cortex had nothing to do with how well the humans or monkeys did. Similarly, the inferior temporal cortex, traditionally assigned a role in visual perception, was found to be crucial for memory tasks, but only in certain contexts. To retired neurobiologist Stephen Wise, formerly of NIMH, the findings imply this. Instead of categorizing cortical areas in terms of their specialized visual, auditory, somatosensory, or executive functions, researchers should study the different combinations of information they represent. One region might be involved in representing simple combinations of features, such as orange and square for an orange square. Other regions might have evolved to represent more complex combinations of visual features or combinations of acoustic or quantitative information. Wise argues that this brain organization scheme explains why there's so much unexpected functional overlap in the traditional maps of mental activity. Each region represents a particular combination of information. And it does that for memory and for perception and for attention and for the control of action, all of that. That's also why the perception and memory tasks that Murray used in her experiments only sometimes involved the perirhinal cortex. As the images in each task morphed, the combinations of features distinguishing them changed. Wise's representational framework is just one way of rethinking the brain's subdivisions. While other researchers agree that the parts list guiding most neuroscientific research has problems, there's little consensus about how to address it. And even scientists in favor of a more radical rethinking of the field find it difficult to outline. 
Louise Pessoa is a neuroscientist at the University of Maryland. It's easy to show how things are not working, right? The hard part now is where we go from here. Pessoa says he's noticed language when he's been writing up his own work. I caught myself using a whole lot of terms that I was criticizing the very use of. It's because it's, you know, we're brought up in this language, right? So how can I say everything without saying attention, emotion, motivation? I was like, okay, I'm even lacking a language here. Paul Chisek in Montreal is one of several researchers starting to rebuild the conceptual categories from an evolutionary perspective. For the past five years, he's been painstakingly making his way through vertebrate evolution, examining the progressive specialization of behavioral systems. The actual subdivisions, functional subdivisions that do exist in the brain, there are, they do exist, and they actually have an evolutionary history to them. If we could identify that history, it'll help us identify the concepts better. Chisek has already used his new breakdown of brain activities to explain why, for instance, the basal ganglia plays a key role in some decision-making tasks, but not others. If you go through this process, you realize that neither the term decision-making or the term attention actually corresponds to a thing in the brain. There's certain sort of very pragmatic circuits in the brain, and they do certain things like approach, avoid, circadian rhythms, etc. And those things are the more appropriate pieces of behavior. Some of those things are going to look a bit like attention. Yuri Buzaki takes a similar view. If you are looking for something that is brain-based, then we have to look at brain mechanisms first and why and how those things developed. For instance, memories, future planning, and imagination are all partly encoded by the same neural mechanisms. That makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, because the same system can be recycled for different purposes. Buzaki says you may be better off thinking about all of those as one. This approach is already leading to some intriguing discoveries. For years, Buzaki has studied sharp wave ripples, a type of brain activity in the hippocampus that enables the storage and retrieval of memories. But in August, in Nature, his former doctoral student, David Tingley, and others in Buzaki's lab revealed an entirely new function for them, helping to regulate blood sugar levels. Buzaki says they're linking a basic metabolic process with a high-level cognitive process. We are linking two very different extremes. Buzaki is now hoping to uncover a deeper connection between the two and to obtain insights into how sharp wave ripples for body regulation might have been repurposed for memory formation. Alternative approaches to studying mental categories are possible, too. Barrett, Pessoa, and others are considering whole brain neural activity and an assortment of behaviors at the same time. Functional categories such as memory, perception, and attention can then be understood as features of the brain state. Because of the counterintuitive groupings that emerged in his earlier study of behavioral data, Poldrack continues to be interested in model-free, data-driven searches for new categories. He thinks mental concepts could potentially be rewritten in computational terms, perhaps as a simplified version of the mathematical descriptions that define layers in artificial neural networks. Each of these potential solutions has shortcomings, 
Lisa Feldman Barrett says new novel ideas aren't necessarily true, so you need to apply a good scientific approach to them. When you have a paradigm shift, like a Cunian paradigm shift, you don't evaluate the new approach by all the questions it answers that the old one couldn't. You evaluate it on the basis of what new questions does it stimulate? And does it actually offer a better ontological structure for accumulating knowledge? Psychologist and neuroscientist Russell Poldrack agrees, but he says he doesn't think anyone would want to tell people not to use the word memory anymore. To understand the brain, we might need to challenge our intuitions about how it works, in the same way that quantum mechanics is challenging to comport with our understanding of physical phenomena in the world. Another important consideration is how meaningful a new framework might end up being. Here's Krakauer again. What happens if folks' psychological notions start to fall by the wayside and you need to be scientifically more sophisticated? You may gain in terms of knowledge, but you may actually stop understanding yourself or having a story to tell yourself about what's happening to you. Krakauer says when we wonder how the brain works, we want it to mean something to us. What's happening in my brain when I fall in love or when I'm excited? In a way, it may well be that these fields actually don't provide the satisfaction that the layperson might want because the very notions that they live by are not going to map onto those sciences anymore. Now, are we willing to live with that? It's almost an ethical issue. There's an instability between the satisfaction that you would derive to being told how your brain works but being very upset when they say, well, we're going to give you the answer, but the answer will not be framed in the same way as the question itself. Krakauer says it would be a little bit like the answer 42 in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The correct answer, but not to the question we had in mind. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowitz's full article, The Brain Doesn't Think the Way You Think It Does, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Explore more science mysteries in the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quanta Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. Music